Now, uh, over the past group of weeks, we've been going through the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is uh, a book. So one of my, my kids asked me, they said, you know, effectively, Dad, what, how would you describe the book of Romans? Like, what kind of, uh, you know, book would you say that it is? And I said, well, when you're going through the book of Romans, one of the things you can tell is that it's very high on theology. There's a lot of details of theology in the book of Romans. And um, there's a lot of specifics there. We've been taking about a half chapter at a time, working our way through it. And today we're in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first half of the chapter. And I'll tell you right away before we take a look at the content of it, one of the main things you'll see in this section of Romans chapter 4 today is the joy of walking in the footsteps of faith. And we're going to see a prime example here, a man named Abraham, who's used as an example of what it means to walk in the footsteps of faith. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 4, we're going to pick up at verse 1 of Romans 4, and we'll be reading down to verse 12. And again, we're looking at this idea of the joy of walking in the footsteps of faith. And this is what it says, starting with verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together this morning and read it and meditate on its content. And Lord, as we look at this portion of Scripture from Romans chapter 4, we pray that you'd speak to us. We pray that you'd prepare our hearts and our minds to understand it and grow from it. And Lord, we're grateful for the example from Abraham's life that you have allowed us the privilege to be able to observe as we look at Scriptures like this and what it teaches us about the kind of walk you desire that we have with you as well. So we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm regularly grateful, very grateful, for the people that the Lord's blessed me with the privilege to know, particularly those that I've learned to look up to as examples of how to live. 
There are people that have come before me that have set a powerful example for me in areas like marriage, uh, in parenting, in personal finances, in leadership, in ministry, and a variety of other areas as well. And I'm thankful to have had the, the privilege to observe them and watch them live their lives because they were people that their actions backed up what they said. And I was blessed through observing them with visible roadmaps that have informed the way that I make many life decisions. Now, some of the greatest examples that the Lord's blessed me with in my life have also been people who have shown me what it means to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. So I was blessed with people in my family that showed me what it was to, what it looked like to walk with Christ. People in my home church showed me that. Uh, people through summer camp, that's where many of my major life influences were in regard to my faith. Friends in college and professors in college and also pastors and, and other leaders who mentored me and invested in my growth. And again, they gave me an example of what it means to walk by faith. And it's interesting when you think about that over the course of your life and you develop a grateful attitude toward those people that made those investments. But as life goes on, before you know it, you discover that you've now entered into a season where there are people who are actually looking up to you. And that's a very interesting transition and a very interesting change. But there are people that are looking to you to set the example for what it means to look like to be, to be married, to be a parent, to manage finances, to lead, to walk by faith, all of these things. There are people looking to you for these things as well. So now, what does it look like to walk by faith in God in the midst of all those circumstances and opportunities? And why is God so pleased with those who choose to walk by faith? And likewise, how can we leave footsteps of faith that set a course for those who come after us? Well, these are the type of things that we actually find here in Romans chapter 4. And one of the areas or one of the things that we're shown in this portion of Scripture that is a characteristic of those who leave footprints or leave footsteps of faith and walk in those and kind of leave a mark for others to walk in as well is that they learn to trust God for what they have not yet seen. Now, one of the most uh, widely known and respected people to have ever walked the face of this earth was a man named Abraham. And at present, there are billions of people on this earth right now, this very day, who would list him as a major influence on their spiritual heritage. And I would likewise list myself as one of those people who would say, Abraham has had a major influence on my spiritual heritage. Now, we just read through Romans chapter 4. We're going to dig apart the details in Romans chapter 4 in, in just a moment. But before we even do that, I want to point out that Paul mentions Abraham and he mentions his faith as something notable and foundational in Romans chapter 4. And I want to take a look at some of the highlights of Abraham's life to set this up before we analyze some of those specifics that Paul mentions. Abraham lived a while ago. Uh, as best as I can tell, Abraham lived somewhere around the year 2100 B.C. So that's a little while ago. Um, I, you know, when you're looking forward to, I don't know what you have on, on the horizon for the coming years. I don't know what you think you're going to be doing when you're 75 years of age. But when Abraham was 75 years of age, 
the Lord called him to leave the city of Ur, where he lived, where his family was from, um, you know, where he was familiar with a lot of different things and a lot of different people. And at age 75, the Lord called him to go to a land that he would show him. Now, I have to tell you, one of the things that, um, as, uh, as a parent that I find myself doing is sometimes I'll tell our family, I'll tell my kids in particular, we're going to do something, but I won't give all the details. And sometimes that goes fine, and then other times it's not always received super well. And if that's not received super well when you're growing up, because we want to know details then, how do you suppose that would be naturally received by somebody once they're 75 years of age for God to look at them and say, I want you to go to a land that I will show you? Wouldn't you want to know a lot more details than that? But the idea is, yeah, I'll show you. Just get up and start moving. I'll show you. It's like, well, well, what else do I need to know? It's like, walk. That's all you need to know. Just walk. Just trust me. Just go in the direction that I'm calling you to go. And Abraham, 75 years... I, so I'm 42 years old, and I know how set in my ways I am at age 42. And I can only imagine how set in my ways and how difficult I will be for my wife to live with when I am 75 years old because I'm noticing a pattern and the trenches keep getting dug a little bit deeper as my life goes on. And when I'm 75 years old, I I imagine that that would be a challenge. And when you look at what Abraham's doing here, at age 75, the Lord says, get up and go to a place I'm going to show you. But God promised Abraham some things in the midst of this transition. God promised him that he would give him a land of his own, that he would make him into a great nation, and that he would bless him. And even though Abraham grew up in a context where he was surrounded by false religions and he was surrounded by idolatry, he was willing to trust the true and living God. He was willing to uproot his life and he was willing to begin moving in the direction of the unfamiliar while walking by faith. That would not be an easy thing, naturally speaking, to do. Now, during Abraham's life, Scripture reveals to us that he had also been blessed with great wealth. Abraham was a very wealthy man. The Lord caused him to prosper. And Abraham, by the way, did not idolize what the Lord had entrusted to his care. But still, it saddened him that he didn't have a son of his own with his wife, Sarah, that he would be able to bless with that inheritance. And Scripture tells us that when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, the Lord promised them that they would have a child, and they were to name that child Isaac. Now, naturally speaking, it would be comical to believe that that a 90-year-old woman was going to bear a child. But the Lord, the giver of life, caused Isaac to be miraculously born through Sarah. And by the way, this miraculous birth, as you see this happening in the book of Genesis, and you realize, all right, naturally speaking, when somebody's 90, they're not a childbearing age at age 90. It was a miraculous birth that the Lord had caused to happen through Abraham and Sarah. And what he was doing in that moment, he was foreshadowing the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ through Mary, giving a visible glimpse of a greater birth that was yet to come. But he was giving a foretaste of that through Abraham and Sarah's life. Now, obviously, the birth of Isaac brought Abraham and Sarah great joy. And they loved Isaac. They cherished him. They loved him like good parents would be expected to do. 
But the love that we have for one another, even the love that we have for our children, should be a reflection of our love for God, not something that takes the place of God. So in the midst of this great blessing, Scripture tells us that God tested the depth of Abraham's love, and God tested the depth of Abraham's faith. The Lord asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, Isaac would have been a young man at the time of this sacrifice. He wasn't a little boy, like sometimes I see him characterized. If you do the math based on their ages and you look at the context of the story, he would have had to have been a young man at the, type, at the time of this sacrifice. And in fact, it also tells us that he carried the wood for this sacrifice on his shoulders, and it would have been a decent amount of wood for this sacrifice. And so you have Isaac carrying it on his shoulders, uh, on his back, up the hill to the place of the sacrifice, And he certainly could have escaped his elderly father if he wanted to. He could have escaped him. He could have gotten away. But just as Abraham trusted in God, Isaac trusted Abraham. And he willingly cooperated with this test. And in the end, when Isaac was bound, and again, I don't believe Isaac needed to allow himself to be bound. He chose to trust what was going on here, even though I'm sure it didn't make sense. But in the end here where Isaac is bound and he's placed upon the wood, and the sacrifice is about to take place, and Abraham's got his his knife raised into the sky, ready to plunge it into his son, as crazy as that sounds, God told Abraham not to carry through with it. He provided a ram to take Isaac's place. But he commended the fact that Abraham truly trusted him. Now, why was Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac. Why was he willing to do that? Even though God had promised him a whole bunch of things were going to come through Isaac. Well, we won't turn there, but I'll just let you know the reference. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, that verse of Scripture, it explains that Abraham believed that God was going to miraculously raise Isaac from death. He believed that Isaac would indeed die, but that God, the giver of life, who had caused Isaac to be miraculously born in the first place, would miraculously raise Isaac from the death. That's how he rationalized this whole thing in his mind. And Isaac being Abraham's only son through Sarah, carrying the wood on his back up the hill, willingly laying down his life as a sacrifice with with faith that God can raise the dead. Consider all the things that these things are foreshadowing. You know, it's all foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice and resurrection of Christ something that Jesus was ultimately going to accomplish on behalf of mankind. We see very visible pictures meant to tune our hearts to notice these things right there in the book of Genesis. Now, there's certainly other highlights and even errors from Abraham's life that we can point out, but just an observation, a quick observation of his life shows that he was a man of great faith. He trusted God in the midst of all kind of circumstances, and the Scripture tells us that he was declared righteous in God's eyes because of his faith. He wasn't declared righteous in God's eyes because he had earned that designation, and he wasn't declared righteous in God's eyes because of his works or because of his merits. He was declared righteous in God's eyes by faith. Abraham trusted God for what he could not yet see. And we're invited to copy that example. So what else should we be observing from Abraham's life? Well, I think we could observe that that walking in the footsteps of faith as Abraham was doing It involves working for God's glory, not for God's favor. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, look with me, if you will, back to verse 1 of Romans chapter 4. In verse 1 of Romans chapter 4, it says this, and I'm going to read the verses that come after this, but it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now let's pause there for just a second. I'll admit this, um, one of the greatest blessings that my father gave me when I was growing up was the blessing of teaching me the importance of hard work. He showed me what it looked like. He regularly invited me, or that's, that's too loose of a word, he regularly forced me um, to work at our family-run grocery store that my great-grandfather had started, and then my grandfather continued, and then my dad continued. And uh, I was pretty much, I, I wanted to work there, but I, even if I didn't want to work there, I really didn't have a choice. And from a young age, I learned to work there. Now, I also have the same name as my dad. And um, I was always mindful of the fact while working there, and he reminded me of this plenty, that to the other employees, I was the boss's kid. Right? That's how they saw me. I was the boss's kid. Meaning, everything I did in that store would, in one way or another, reflect upon my father. So I worked hard. I worked hard at the store being mindful of that. I tried to be mindful of the time I was putting in, not wasting time knowing that I was being paid by the hour and knowing that other people were observing me. And I did that not because I was trying to earn my father's love. I already knew I had my father's love. I did that because my work ethic or my lack thereof would impact his ability to lead and manage his staff and employees. What I did was going to reflect upon him. He loved me, and I was going to reflect upon him. I had the same name. I was the boss's kid, and that was the setup. There's a very similar dynamic in regard to our relationship with God. It's a terrible mistake to believe that God's love could be earned through our efforts. You know, that's a mindset that's been prevalent in humanity since Adam rebelled against God. That's a mindset that we've been wrestling with. That's a mindset that Paul was confronting here in this chapter, in Romans chapter 4, in the verses that we just read. Humanity has been wrestling with relational insecurity ever since we first went our own way and rejected walking with God. And that insecurity often makes us mistakenly believe that a relationship with God and the righteousness of God can only be granted as a payment for our efforts to earn it. Because so often we are insecure in this relationship. So we think that God might decide one day to stop loving us or that God might decide one day to stop investing in our lives or that God might change his mind about the work that he's been doing in and through us. And sometimes, just like we've had to do with some of the human relationships we've had, we start trying to earn the favor of God. We start trying to earn the love 
of God, but it doesn't work like that. And so like he did in the previous chapter, you have the Apostle Paul making it clear that that's not possible for us to do. We can't earn the favor of God. And he also points out to us that we have nothing to boast about before God, meaning that our salvation has been granted to us as a gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not as a wage for a service. And it's not through the works of our flesh. The good deeds we do, because we're obviously invited to do good things and to invest our lives in worthwhile causes and to glorify Christ in all areas of our lives. But the things that we do, the work that we do, should be for the goal of glorifying God, for showing how good God is, not for trying to earn His favor. We work for God's glory, not for God's favor. His favor is undeserved. His favor is unmerited. You can't make God love you any more or any less. And just as God did through Abraham, He can bring about long-term good through our lives as we continue to walk in these footsteps of faith, as we continue to trust Christ in all circumstances. So look at the example that Paul shares of the long-term good, the kind of long-term good that we can see God bring about through the legacy of a life, a life like Abraham's life, as he uses it as an example here. And what we see in verses 9 to 12 is this idea of delighting in the long-term good that God will foster through you. Look at verse 9. It says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, in, we're not going to turn there, but I want to give you the references. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we're told that Abraham believed God and was therefore counted as righteous in God's eyes. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, so a couple chapters later, when Abraham was 99 years old, God established the practice of circumcision with him and his offspring as a sign of the covenant that God had made with him. And during the era in which Paul was preaching and teaching the gospel and writing these things that we're reading here, there were plenty of people who believed that a person could not be saved if they hadn't first been circumcised. And by the way, that's similar to the mistaken thought that we experience in this day and age where people believe that a, a person cannot be saved unless they're first baptized. Now, next week we're going to be celebrating some baptisms together, but those baptisms are going to be celebrating the salvation that God gives as a gift to those who trust in Him. Baptism, do, baptism doesn't save. Baptism commemorates the salvation that God has done. But in our age, in our era, there are people that mistakenly believe that baptism would save a person. And in this particular era, there were people who believed that circumcision basically saved a person and that a person could not be saved apart from being circumcised. But here you have Paul clarifying in Romans chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, that Abraham was declared righteous in God's eyes 
before, not after, he was circumcised. Now, during that era, many of those who were trusting more in the act of circumcision, or we could say in their, in their own natural ability to keep the requirements of the Old Testament law, uh, then they were trusting in the Lord himself. They would likewise brag about the fact, uh, not only that they were circumcised, not only that they were keeping the Old Testament law on their own strength, but they would also brag about the fact that Abraham was their ancestral father. It was like a badge of honor to be a descendant of Abraham. And so people would brag about that sort of thing. They thought that that made them uh, extra special. And in doing so, what they were effectively saying was that they believed they were perfectly fine in God's eyes because of their blood lineage, their blood relationship to Abraham. And they reasoned that since God clearly loved Abraham, um, and since they were part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham uh, to make his children as numerous as the stars of the sky, they reasoned that they were already righteous in the eyes of God apart from faith that they could go through the motions and that that would be sufficient, but that they didn't have to rely on the Lord himself to make them righteous. They effectively thought they could make themselves righteous through their activity and through their deeds. And so you have Paul challenging that thought in this portion of Scripture by calling Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So what he's saying there when he's saying something like that, he's saying Abraham is the father of all who believe apart from going through the motions of trying to keep the letter of the law. It's not keeping the letter of the Old Testament law that's going to save or rescue any of us because we have a sin nature that prevents us from being able to keep it perfectly. So the legacy and the long-term good that came from Abraham's life was to set an example of what it means to trust God completely, even in the midst of confusing and stretching seasons. That's not an easy thing for us to do, naturally speaking, is it? To trust God completely, even in the midst of confusing and stretching seasons that He allows us to go through during different stretches of our lives. There's a long-term good that came from that legacy. And now here we are, more than 4,000 years after the events in in Abraham's life took place. So it's more than 4,000 years later. And here we are in Pennsylvania thinking about the things that God did in Abraham's life. And we're still edified, we're still challenged, and we're still encouraged by the sincere faith in God that Abraham modeled for us. We're counted among those that this Scripture refers to as those who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had. Where people have the privilege to walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had. People who learn to trust God in the midst of all circumstances. So, as we ponder this example, right, as we're thinking about these things, as we look at this portion of the book of Romans and think of Abraham's life and think of some of the things that the Lord was doing in and through him, I want us to consider something for just a quick second. So just as we walk in the footsteps of faith that our predecessors made for us, so too are we making footprints that someone else is going to walk in. We're making footprints that somebody else is going to walk in. And those footprints, and hear me when I say this, 
Those footprints that we're making are the most consequential and long-lasting aspect of our legacy. Do you believe that? You know, these footprints of faith that the Lord is using our life to make right now, they actually have eternal ramifications. Now, I think as time goes on over the course of our life, we start thinking about ideas related to our legacy a little bit more. But I don't want to just speak in this moment uh, to those of us that feel like we're in the second season of our life or the second half of our life. I want each of us in this room to hear this idea because in every season of your life, from your earliest days until now, you're being observed. If you're a child, you can be certain that your siblings and your cousins are observing your life and watching the things that God is doing in you. In fact, let me show you a picture here. You see this picture? You see this baby on the left? He's staring, looking at this other baby next to him, learning something, right? I came across this picture this week. I thought, oh, wow, that's exactly the concept that I'll be talking about on Sunday, that at every season of your life, you're being observed. Even when you're a baby, by the way, that's my cousin Lance, and that's me. And um, my cousin Lance was looking at me. He's like, he's three months older than me. And uh, he's looking at me. No, I guess he's four months older. So he had an edge on me here. And he's looking, and he's like, man, I wonder what's got him so upset. And I wonder what kind of attention he's going to get the longer he cries. And I wonder if I should do that too, because maybe then I'll get that attention. But you're being observed no matter what age you happen to be at, right? Now, if you're a young adult, right now it's a guarantee that your friends and your peers are making justifications for their decisions based on what they see in you. If you're a parent... You're making footprints right now that will have a profound impact on the life and the faith of your children. If you're a grandparent, there are now two generations of people who are walking in the footsteps of faith that you're making and have made. I'll show you another picture. This is one of my favorite pictures that I have, and I had this picture purposely taken. We were at my dad's house one evening. Uh, this is this would be right at the end of our time in college, and uh, on the left here you could see that's John Stonge and that's Ruth Stonge and that's Andrea and me, and uh, so my grandparents were there. And growing up, I realized, uh, particularly during my teenage years, that they had the marriage that I wanted to have someday. And even before Andrea had ever met them, I would tell her all the time, I was like, I, "You've got to meet my grandparents. They have the marriage that I hope we have someday." And uh, she loved them. And uh, my, my grandparents loved Andrea as well. And I was like, we've got to get a good picture with them at some point. And so, uh, you know, we were all together. And I was like, hey, wait a second. You know, Grandpa, Grammy, sit down on the couch here with us. I want to get a picture. And um, I'm so glad I have that now. They're both with the Lord now. And I look at that and I think, I'm so glad I have that picture. Because in my mind, I always think, you know, one of the most profound people that have had an impact on my faith is that woman right there. And the most profound marriage that had an impact on my marriage is that marriage right there. And I bring it up because when we're looking at a portion of Scripture like this, and it talks about, and Paul's trying to illustrate here this idea that Abraham made these footsteps of faith that we as those who come after him have the privilege to walk in. There are people like Abraham that are in our distant past, our distant heritage, that we could look at as examples of what it means to trust God. 
and walk by faith. There's also probably some people in your recent history that you're walking in their footsteps as well. But keep this all in mind because you're making those footprints too. And someone's copying you. And it's not just when you get to be grandparents when it starts. It starts way earlier than that. In fact, it starts at the earliest seasons of your life. Someone's got their eye on you. Somebody's watching you. And you could be making footprints now. You don't have to wait until much later on. So what does it look like? Let me finish with this statement, or these statements. I have four things I want to suggest. What does it look like for us to walk in the footsteps of faith? How can we apply this concept that Abraham knew so well to our circumstances? Let me suggest four things before we finish up this morning. Number one, trust God in all circumstances, particularly the ones that make the least sense to you. If you're anything like me, you like everything to fit into tidy, neat, predictable boxes. I don't like surprises. I really don't. You know, usually, right? I guess there's some exception. Like if you drive a dump truck of Butterfingers up to my house, you know, in a couple days, I might be okay with that surprise. But the, the point being, a lot of times in life there are circumstances that are beyond our explanation, things that puzzle us, things that uh, maybe even frighten us, things that disturb us, things that make us feel a lot of insecurity or discouragement or even sadness, whatever it may be. Trust God in all circumstances, particularly the ones that make the least sense to you. That's actually where your faith muscle gets worked out and stretched and made stronger. The Lord's doing you a blessing or giving you a blessing. He's teaching you what it looks like to walk by faith. He's giving you opportunities to put it into practice. Second suggestion is this. Believe in Christ and trust that His work on the cross was sufficient to reconcile you to God. Is that not what the Apostle Paul was trying to illustrate in this portion of Scripture? You have a group of people that were trying to reconcile themselves to God or earn the favor of God. And you have Paul, when you look through the book of Romans, what's the big pattern? What's he trying to people, help people to understand? He's trying to help them to understand that they have new life in Christ. And we need to be people that understand that trusting in Jesus Christ results in new life and His righteousness being granted to us. And we can trust that His work on the cross is sufficient to reconcile us to God. That's the message of this book. It's a thread going all throughout the course of this book. Third suggestion is this. We're talking about this idea of walking in the footsteps of faith. Give your observers, and again, you already have them. You may not know you have them, but you already have them. Give your observers a daily glimpse of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. One of the most visible areas of evidence that you or I know Jesus Christ and that He's transformed us within is the fruit of the Holy Spirit present in our relationships and how we speak to one another and how we treat one another and how we put one another above our own selfish desires. Let your observers see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. My sister often testifies to the fact that, you know, I had been saying I had come to faith in Christ, but she was convinced I had become a believer in Christ when she dumped a plate of barbecue ribs down my brand new white jersey. I was wearing a white jersey. It was the most expensive shirt I owned. 
and she dumped a plate of barbecue ribs down the back. I had, there was a microwave right behind me. She took it out of the microwave. It was too hot for her hands, and so she dropped it. And I was just about to go out, barbecue ribs all over my white jersey. And she panicked because she thought, I'm pretty sure this is my last moment. I'm pretty sure he's going to kill me. And I, sa I said to her, I was like, please tell me what I think happened didn't just happen. She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll clean that up. I'll do so And then she just paused, almost in panic fear. And I was like, nah, it's all right. I was like, I still need to go out. I said, is there any chance you could work on these stains, though, while I'm out? And she's like, yeah, I'll get those out before they set in. Sure. And she has told me in the years since, she's like, that's the moment when I became convinced that you actually did believe in Christ, when you showed me patience that was clearly prompted by the Holy Spirit, where you showed me forbearance and forgiveness that was clearly prompted by the Holy Spirit. That's when your actions matched your words, and I actually believed that you trusted in Christ. Give your observers, and again, we all have them, give your observers a visible glimpse of the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work within you. And one-fourth suggestion. As a recipient of the unmerited love of God, be lavish and generous with that love and share it with even the most undeserving of acquaintances. Don't wait for someone to deserve love before you give it. Because that's not the pattern the Lord set for us. He showed us love when we deserved condemnation. And there are people in your life right now that are the most unlovable, difficult people that we would all probably just rather avoid than show love. But if we're walking in the footsteps of faith, what are we invited to do? We're invited to show what we've been shown as we are recipients of the unmerited love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, we need to be lavish and generous with that love, even to the most undeserving of acquaintances. One last thing I want to finish up with. I just want to read one portion of Scripture for us as we close. That's from Psalm 78, verse 4. And it speaks of the things that we pass on to those who come after us. And it says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your goodness and Your grace and Your love. And thank You so much for the things that You've shown us from Your Word as we've been looking at this portion of Scripture together today. Lord, we recognize that it can be challenging for us at times to, to walk by faith. It can be challenging to trust You for things that we haven't seen. It can be challenging for us to try and um, focus on Your glory instead of trying to earn Your favor. We so often mistakenly believe that Your favor can be earned, and You reveal to us in Your Word that it cannot be earned. Lord, we're also grateful for the long-term good that, that You foster in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that in every context of life that You place us in, that we would be mindful to make footprints of faith like the Apostle Paul describes Abraham having done. We pray, Lord, that the primary testimony of our lives would be that we trusted in You. And again, Lord, when we look at Your Word, You tell us that by grace, through faith, do we become righteous in Your sight. It's not through the works of the flesh. 
It's not through earning your love. That can't be done. But as we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, your word reveals to us that we are blessed with the righteousness of Christ and viewed from that point on as righteous in your eyes. This was Abraham's testimony, and we pray that by your grace that you would make that our testimony as well. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to see these things in your word today. We commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.